You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning. Welcome again. If you're new, we are glad you're here. And if you're old, we're glad you're here. Even if you're really old, we're glad you're here. Thanks so much, David, worship team, everybody who's helping to make today's service a time of uh, of focus and worship to the Lord. So grateful for Matt and Katie. One of the great things about them is you don't have to catch them if you want to talk to them after the service. You can catch them any Sunday or most any Sunday. And I would encourage you, it's so exciting what they're going to be doing. I would encourage you to get with them. Well, I want to echo what David said earlier. Happy Veterans Day, a day late. We're so grateful for those of you who have served. We're grateful for those who are serving as well. Well, I want to ask a question that I'll ask you to raise your hand on this. How many of you have been to Israel? Anybody here been to Israel? All right. Just a, just a very few of us have been to Israel. I went a couple of times in the early 80s, and I'll have to say that a, a week in the land where Jesus lived and ministered, died, rose from the dead, is worth a year in Bible college, if not worth a year in seminary. Uh, being in the land of The Bible immediately brings depth to what you already know in Scripture, and it begins to help connect some dots, and like, oh, okay, now I I see that. But it might be a while before trips to the Holy Land resume. Uh, For weeks now, I've been encouraging you to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. That would be a good prayer anywhere there is unrest, for instance, Pray for the peace of Kiev. That would be a good prayer. But the prayer for Jerusalem is one that we find in Psalm 122, which is today's text. I admit that this text is, pri- is primarily a jumping off point because we're going to have to determine whether this means to pray for the Jewish people, the people who currently live in the land, or for all of God's people, whether they be Jews or Gentiles. So there are several questions that we will begin to explore today and next Sunday. These questions will be very important. They must be answered, or they must be at least addressed. They're not going to be answered to any of our satisfaction, I don't suppose, uh, as much as we would like to say, this is exactly what Scripture says about this detail. But we have to address these questions before we get into the second half of Daniel and then especially into the book of Revelation. Uh, again, not as many definitive answers as you might like, but don't be discouraged. We're going to delve deeper into this, this, these topics over the next year. <clears throat> but let's get them on the table. I want to give you a list of questions that we will address today, although not in any particular order. As you can see, we'll only scratch the surface. So who is Israel? Who is Jerusalem? Is it a people? Is it a place? Uh, Geographical boundaries? Who is Israel in the New Testament? What is the difference between earthly Jerusalem 
and spiritual Jerusalem. By the way, we know who Israel is in the Old Testament. Who is Israel in the New Testament? And then what is the difference between the earthly Jerusalem and spiritual Jerusalem? Number three, is the current nation state of Israel a part of God's plan for the end times? Number four, should Christians support the nation of Israel? If so, should we support Israel unconditionally? Five, has the church replaced the nation of Israel as God's people? Number six, have the blessings that were promised to the nation of Israel in the Old Testament been transferred to the church in the New Testament? This has so many more implications than you can imagine. And and let me just say, this is going to be rather complex today. Don't, again, don't get discouraged. Just follow as best you can. Pick up the points. Write something down that really catches your imagination and, and, and then over the next year or so, it's going to hopefully fall into place. And then last of all, number seven, will most or all Jews be saved either before or at Jesus' return? So today's sermon is no doubt more like today's Bible study. As we contemplate these questions, I want to tell you that just... We need to settle this up front. We are not going to agree on everything that we begin to talk about today and all the way through the book of Revelation. There is no possible way that everybody in here is going to agree about everything. That's okay, though. Eschatology is not a first-level or first-tier doctrine. First-tier doctrines are the big ones like the Trinity and the deity of Christ and justification by faith, by grace through faith. Those are the first-tier doctrines. And then second-tier doctrines um, are like mode of baptism, the role of women in church. Those are second-level doctrines. And then third-level doctrines are doctrines about spiritual gifts, the use of spiritual gifts and, and eschatology. So this is not... A top-tier doctrine. In other words, it's open-handed rather than close-fisted. Some things we're not budget on, these first-tier doctrines. But some of these, we can have differences and get along just fine. I will say, though, that what we believe in these areas, what we believe about eschatology, very much impacts how we interpret Scripture and how we even live our lives. So it's really important that we at least know what the pitfalls of these different beliefs are so that we can avoid those. So even so, there's no way we're going to all agree on matters of eschatology. That is why the first verse of our text, Psalm 122, is so important for us to brace as a church family. Let's jump into our text, which will be the jumping off point for the rest of the message. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word, Psalm 122. It's a song of ascents written by David. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Some of you remember singing that song when you were little. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of Yahweh, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of Yahweh. There, thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. The word of God for the people of God. Thank you and be seated. As I've already mentioned, Psalm 122 is a psalm of ascent. It's located near the beginning of a group of songs that the pilgrims would, <clears throat> would recite and sing as they went up the hill to Jerusalem. Now, if you've been to Jerusalem, you know that it sits on a hill and you always go up to Jerusalem. So... That's where the, the people were going. They were going to Jerusalem and they were singing the song. And some of the psalms were structured in such a way that they would sing maybe in this key. And life is really bad. It's really hard. But then, you know, it gets better as you ascend. And they kept going oh, all the way to the top. And they would end on a high note. These psalms of ascent. Uh, men, all Israeli men were commanded by the law to attend Three feasts annually in Jerusalem. Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Pentecost, and also the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles or Sukkot. The people of Israel were celebrating Sukkot when the, the attacks were made on October 7th, though not all were celebrating in Jerusalem. Psalm 122 describes the delight that the pilgrims experienced when they arrived in Jerusalem. They finally make it to Jerusalem. And he says, I'm standing within your gates. And they're telling me, let's go to the house of the Lord. It's a reminder for us to come together with delight and expectation and in unity on Sundays to worship the Lord. Why was Jerusalem so important to God's people, the Jews? It was the city in which God chose to have his temple built. And the temple represented two things, presence and sacrifice. Presence and remedy for sins. So it was important because of that. It was also associated with King David, from whose line the Messiah <clears throat> would come. Jerusalem built on a hill, offering protection for the people of God. <clears throat> Furthermore, when God's people believed and worshipped and obeyed the Lord, the nation of Israel and the city <clears throat> of Jerusalem represented the absolute best of humanity because they dwelt in shalom that was characterized by wholeness <clears throat> and flourishing that God promised his children. We don't see that sort of flourishing in the land today, but it seems nonetheless that Jerusalem is still an important city. I grew up in the late 60s. A lot happened in the 60s. Many of you, especially this group back here, grew up with me in the 60s. 
Patsy Meadows and I worked together. She covered for me many a day uh, when I would come in, <clears throat> having stayed out much later than a 17-year-old should have stayed out the night before. Um, <clears throat> but President Kennedy was assassinated. We landed on the moon and danced around the moon, for goodness sakes. The civil rights movement was led by a very effective Martin Luther King Jr. <clears throat> the Beatles led the British invasion, which is, makes, which is what makes the, the gentleman who plays King George III in the, in the Broadway play Hamilton so hilarious. And the Vietnam War divided Americans in profound ways. Every one of the events that I have mentioned affected all who lived then and they are affecting us to this day. One event that riveted the attention of the entire world was the 1967 <clears throat> Six-Day War in Israel. I was not a Christian at the time, but I had heard Jimmy Johnson preach these prophetic sermons and talk a lot about <clears throat> Israel and Jerusalem. Uh, and, and thus, I have carried with me a, a great interest about the land for all of my life. During the 60s, we rebellious teenagers were certain that the apocalypse was upon us. And so when Israel preemptively attacked Egypt to prevent a certain and devastating attack the other way, we were sure that the end was upon us. Syria and Jordan came to Egypt's defense. But in six days, Israel took, listen to this, none of these belonged to Israel or were, had anything to do, Israel had nothing to do with any of these. In six days, East Jerusalem, where the old city and Temple Mount area are located, the Golan Heights, Egypt's Sinai Peninsula, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. I was spending the night with one of my friends, <clears throat> teenage friends, and since we were so sure that the apocalypse was upon us, we got on our knees and prayed. And I never prayed growing up. But we thought, this is it. We were praying that we would have the right heart and be in the right frame of mind when the Lord returned. Fortunately, the world did not end in 1967. And I say fortunately because although I was baptized and a member of Fuqua Verena Baptist Church, I had not yet believed the gospel. I didn't even know what the gospel meant. I knew that Jesus died for me, but what did, I had no idea what that meant. 2 Peter 3.9 indicates that it is for this reason that Christ delays his return so that more will come to repentance. In the 1960s, everyone was aware of how volatile, how explosive the Middle East could be. Everyone knew for decades that if World War III begins, it is most likely going to begin in Jerusalem. You would have put the percentages way high. Something's going to happen in Jerusalem, and the world is going to explode. For the last few decades, my concern that World War III would begin in Israel had abated. Until five weeks ago, that is. October 7th immediately reignited concerns that what happens in the Middle East could have worldwide implications. So although the title of today's message is Pray for the Peace of Jerusalem, 
The most pressing question that arises from such a directive is, who is Israel in the New Testament? Who are we praying for? This might seem like a strange question after I spent several minutes speaking about the nation state of Israel. But theologically, it is a good deal more complex than simply saying we need to support Israel no matter what. For instance, in Romans 9, verses 6 and 7, Paul says, For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So what does that mean? That some Jews are not a part of the real Israel? The apostle makes the case here and in Galatians 4 that Abraham had two children, Ishmael and Isaac. And it is through Isaac that true Israel comes. To go quite a few steps further, in Galatians 3, verses 7 through 9, and then verse 29, Paul asserts that all who believe in Jesus are Abraham's children or spiritual Israel. And that includes Gentiles, not just Jews, but all of us who believe in Jesus are considered to be Abraham's children. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Have you ever seen that verse before? You've read it dozens of times. But have you ever seen that the gospel was preached to Abraham? How did Abraham get saved? The same way we do. He believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. He didn't know about Jesus. He wasn't looking forward to Jesus. He was believing the promises of God. And the father was looking forward to Jesus. That's how Abraham got saved. Romans 3 tells us that the father overlooked the sins until Jesus was sacrificed for us. The sacrificial system was just kind of a holding place. The Jews knew every year we have to go. The day of atonement, we have to ask forgiveness for our sins. And God forgives our sins for the year. But we have to do it again and again. But not after Jesus. All who are saved who belong to Jesus, have their sins forgiven forever. And and Gentiles and Jews are part of true Israel. Verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, Galatians 6, 15 and 16. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Circumcision was an indication that you followed the law of Moses and your hope was in keeping the law. That's how you got saved. Uncircumcision, those were the Gentiles. They didn't care anything about the law. Paul's saying, look, it's not this or that. A new creation, one who belongs to Jesus. And as for all who walk by this rule, 
peace, there's that word again, peace, shalom, and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, nothing matters except your relationship with and your relation to Jesus. Although a relationship with Jesus is not referenced in these two verses, it is discussed through the entire book of Galatians. And these two verses serve as a theological summary of Paul's argument in his letter to the Galatians. Maybe you've sung the song, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Then you start doing all kinds of crazy antics. Well, is this... Is that song from these verses? Probably. Is it based on Romans 9, Galatians 3, Galatians 6? Yeah. And Romans 4 and 11 and Galatians 4 and Ephesians 2? It's all over the New Testament. But what does that say about the Jews who were once known as God's chosen people. Are they still his chosen people? We've been praying for several weeks now for the peace, the shalom of Jerusalem. But that begs the question, who is Israel? Is it A, ethnic Jews according to Genesis 12, 1 to 3? I will bless you. All those that bless you, I will bless. All those that curse you, I will curse. And you will be a blessing to the nation. Or is it B, all who believe in Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles, or see the nation state of Israel, boundaries around the land of Israel. Is it one, two, or all of these? Well, for starters, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, makes it clear that God set Abraham apart to be the father of his special people. The Jews were chosen by God to be a testimony to a pagan world and light in a dark place and to flourish as a people so that they would in turn bless the world. If you are familiar with the Old Testament, and I'm certain you are, you've been reading it for several years now if you're a member at Grace, right? Um, <clears throat> if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that Israel repeatedly failed to keep their end of the bargain, bargaining God's covenant with his people, which was to obey the law. God said, I'm giving you everything. You only got one thing to do, and that's obey the law. Well, they couldn't do it. It was impossible. That's why Jesus had to come to die for their sins, for our sins, for the sins of the whole world. Praise God that the truth of the gospel has been made known and available to Gentiles. So what do we do with what we have already seen this morning from the New Testament? Can we deny that Jews and Gentiles together are called God's chosen people? Must we insist that Jews alone are God's chosen people? What about 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, which was written largely to a Gentile church. But you were a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, it's interesting that the Old Testament Jews never had a problem self-identifying as God's chosen people. Although we who believe in Jesus and belong to Jesus and are told that we are God's chosen people have difficulty. We choke on that. We, it, uh, well, no, it's my choice. Well, yes, but we are God's chosen people. Peter was writing to the New Testament church, to New Testament churches that were made up of both Jews and Gentiles. It seems clear, does it not? And I haven't begun to read all the verses in the New Testament that talk about all the walls being broken down, but they've been broken down. And all who believe in Jesus are called God's people. In that sense, to pray for the peace of Jerusalem is to pray for the shalom of God's people, the church. Peace was made available to wicked sinners, both Jewish sinners and Gentile sinners. We learned last week in Isaiah 53, through the suffering of God's servant, when he bore the sins of many as the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus in judgment for our sins. When we believe that Jesus died for us, and all that that involves, repenting of sin and recognizing we are hopeless without him. When we believe, we become his children, one of his people. So where does that leave us with the nation state of Israel? This is by far the toughest one to answer. We have to say at the very least that ethnic Jews were God's chosen people from the time he made his covenant with Abraham right up through Pentecost when the church was born. It's also true that we see now in the New Testament all believers, Jewish and Gentile, are true Israel. So what about Jewish men and women who are alive today and especially those who live in Israel. Are the Jews still God's chosen people? They are for sure if they believe in Jesus. But what about Israel in the future? You might have heard a rumor from the New Testament that God is going to save all the Jews before he returns or near the end of his return. So what about Israel in the future? Does, will he save them or does he no longer have a special relationship with Israel outside the church? That's the primary question to be answered from the entire message. And again, it's going to impact our interpretation of Daniel and Revelation. If you're connected to Church Center, then you might have seen my encouragement too late in the week, Friday instead of maybe Wednesday, to read Romans 9 to 11 if you were able before today's message. And if you weren't able to read it before today, I hope you'll be interested in reading it after today. I'm going to offer my understanding of Romans 11, 25 to 28, near the very end of this theologically dense 
treatment of Paul talking about relationship between Gentiles and Jews and how God deals with all of us. To give context, Paul has spent most of Romans 11 talking about Israel, meaning the Jewish people, not the Israel of God that he refers to in other places, but about the nation of Jewish people. They were under Roman rule, but they had some sort of self-governance that the Romans allowed at a certain level. So he was talking about the Jewish people. And he, and he said they had fallen away. They had been cut off from an olive tree. The branches had been cut off. They were natural to the tree, but they'd been cut off. And now Gentile branches have been grafted into the tree. Not natural, but they've been brought into the tree. Why did it have to be be this way that God allowed the Jews or caused the Jews to go down so that the Gentiles could rise? I don't know. I don't know, but I'm okay with it only because it's the way God works. Paul warned the Gentiles, don't get the big head because you're not a natural branch. The natural branch is sitting on the ground, but he can just as easily take you out, put the other one Back in. And then he says in Romans 11, verses 25 to 28, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come in upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So, Jews have fallen, Gentiles have risen, and at the end of Gentiles, the fullness of the Gentiles, something's going to happen. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And then verse 28, we'll come back to this. This verse has been horribly abused through the years. As regards the gospel, they, the Jewish people, are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. Okay, I think that's all we got time for today. Uh, Let's go home. What does it mean in verse 26? That all Israel will be saved. First of all, you need to know that all doesn't mean every last single one. It's just like if I were to say something and I heard gasp all over the place. You might walk out and say the whole congregation was horrified. You know, at what was said, the whole nation of Israel, all Israel, not every last single one, but huge numbers will be saved. Is the Israel of God that we read about in Galatians 6 the same in verse 26? Or is he talking about ethnic Jews? I think the latter because he's been talking about the difference between the Jewish people and the Gentile people the entire chapter, Romans 11. I think God still has a plan for the people with whom he made a covenant through Abraham, and that's what he's talking about in verse 27. 
So does this mean that the Jewish men and women who since A.D. 70, after they were scattered for a second time, remember they, they were scattered in the Babylonian captivity we've already read about, thought about in Habakkuk and Daniel. Now, <clears throat> there's a, a lot of Jews had come back to, to the land of Israel and now they're being scattered again from A.D. 70 until 1948. In 1947, right at the end of the year, the United Nations, probably because of sympathy for the Jewish plight, the Holocaust, which had killed 6 million Jews. Out of sympathy, the United Nations, and with pressure from uh, Harry Truman, who was not always a friend to the Jewish nation, the land was partitioned and Israel was given a little patch of land. In 19, May 14th, 1948, they became a nation. Five Arab nations attacked, and the war went on until finally there was an agreement. Every time Israel's in a war, their territory expands almost every time. So is this from God? Is this God's doings, or is it just the way of the world? Um. I don't think we can know for sure if the nation, the current nation of Israel is part of God's plan. Uh, there could be several cycles. There, the indication is if you believe that Israel is going to be saved at the end, the indication is they'll be in the land and that they will turn to the Lord en masse. This could be it or it could be many cycles of dispersion and coming back. I mean, it could be we don't know when the Lord is coming back. You're certain that it's in this next few years? I was certain in 1967, I can tell you, when I was on my knees praying. And, and, and when Jerusalem was taken by the Israelis, they walked around and clapped their hands. I was, when the Lord turned again, the captivity of Zion, we were as those who dreamed dreams, prophecy being fulfilled. Be careful about making sure prophecy is being fulfilled right before your eyes. We don't know. Most contemporary Jews are agnostic or atheistic. And whether there are days or millennia before Jesus returns, the nation of Israel has not been given a green light to oppress and destroy other nations any more than we have. We must not, though, forget the plight of the people through whom God chose to bless the nation. Throughout Israel's history, different people groups have sought the annihilation of the Jews. It's seen all the way through the Old Testament, perhaps best told in the book of Esther. We know that the European Inquisition in the Middle Ages, the Russian pogroms of, of the last two and a half century, Hitler's final solution, all had genocidal impulse, if not outright genocidal design and intent. And what you need to know, if you're so frustrated with others who are coming against Israel now, is that most of what I've just said was done in the name of Christ. How? Horrible. Now, Hitler, that's hardly done in the name of the Christ. But the Inquisition, the Russian pogroms, yes. Many voices today are calling for the annihilation of Israel and implied is a call for the extermination 
of the Jewish people. Now, this charge is going to be denied if you say it to someone. If you press those who chant, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. They'll deny that they are calling for a Hitlerian extermination of the Jews, but rather for the end of Jewish rule in the Middle East. According to a ministry colleague, a friend of mine, who served in the West Bank, and, and, and has many Arab friends. He says that when you talk privately, there's a desire for Israel to control the entire area. But nobody can say that publicly. You have to keep up appearances and <clears throat> talk about your desire for a free Palestine. Now, understand, that's not official. That's just a result of a conversation that I had this past week. Let me ask, ask you a question. Should we be outraged about the atrocities of October 7th this year? Absolutely. Think of the indignation that we would feel if this had happened on American soil. According to my highly advanced mathematician of a grandson, genetic, I'm sure. I knew my three years in Algebra 1 would pay off sometime. Uh, but this kid is brilliant, I tell you, with math. It's amazing to watch his mind work. The 1,400 men, women, and babies, children and babies who were brutally murdered, horrifically killed in Israel. And the 240 who were kidnapped and taken to Gaza out of 7.1 million Jews is equivalent to our nation of 331 million. If the same percentages happen here, that would be 65, 338 men, women, and children murdered and 11,155 Americans being dragged across the border, say, of Mexico, and held hostage there. That would mean 65,338 Americans killed in comparison to 2,977 Americans killed on 9-11. And over 11,100 people still being held hostage in Mexico. How do you think we would respond for international pressure on a ceasefire? So does this mean that we should support the current nation state of Israel unconditionally? No, it does not. Surely, Palestinians have been horribly mistreated at times. We should hold Israel accountable for atrocities in the same way that we hold ourselves accountable. Oh, but when we think about doing that, we forget that we're not perfect either. There's no nation. It's perfect. I have this conversation with young people all the time. What do you think a government's number one responsibility is? It's to protect its people. And then two, why do you think we make the decisions we do? In our own self-interest. But we, of course... Recognize how wonderful we are as a nation. It's the old pride goes before. It's all tricky. 
No matter what you say, it's tricky. And there's going to be more about this next week. We think about millennial positions. Politics is complicated. And yes, politics is singular. For the grammar nerds. This is so heavy. Let me just take them. Even though we're late, I'm, I'm going to take a minute just to break it, break it up for just a moment. You heard about the English professor of the big class. And he said, in, a, in English, a double negative equals a positive. In many languages, a double negative is used for emphasis. But there is no language in which a double positive equals a negative. And a student in the back said, yeah, right. Okay, let me go back to where I was. <laughs> Politics is complicated. I know what I'm about to say would not necessarily be in line with those of you who believe that the only way Jews are chosen specially by God anymore is through the church and with a personal relationship with Jesus. If... Romans 11 teaches, as I think it does, that most or all Jews will be saved just before the end times, before the second coming of Christ, then here's the way I think about it. I don't want to be openly, I don't want to be found openly opposing the Jewish people, holding them accountable, absolutely, but not in opposition. Even though Paul, immediately after saying that all Israel will be saved, says that for now, they, those who oppose the gospel are enemies. And they were indeed Paul's enemies. Had him arrested, tried to have him killed. So when believers read Psalm 122.6, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. At the very least, we know that we can pray for peace within the church, and that we would be that light in a dark space, and that we would have the wholeness and flourishing that points people to something better than this mess that we've got in the world today. Revelation 21 describes the bride of Christ as the new Jerusalem. So the church, the new Jerusalem, but at the same time, it, it speaks of gates and high walls of the city in which the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb or Jesus' apostles are inscribed, uniting the Old and New Testament. Jerusalem from beginning to end, from beginning in Genesis 14 when Melchizedek, king of Salem, blessed Abraham with food and wine, by the way, food and wine from the table. All the way through Revelation 21, Jerusalem seems to hold a special place in God's heart. So I wish that I could conclude with three or four compelling points of application to challenge us. But as it is, it's enough that we recognize that our different views about who true Israel is should do nothing to divide us, to seek the peace of Jerusalem is to seek unity in the church. And it's a good reminder to pray that the Jewish people will be saved. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. How does it end? To the Jew first and also to the Greeks. 
I want to end this morning with Paul's concluding thoughts in Romans 9 through 11. And you're going to need it if you read through Romans 9, 10, and 11. You're going to need these concluding thoughts because your head is going to be about to explode if you're really trying to find out, understand what he's saying. He admitted, Paul did at the end in this doxology, that some things are beyond our ability to comprehend but are nonetheless marvelous. So let's continue our study of eschatology with appropriate humility and teachableness. And I'm going to think if we don't learn anything and if we don't change our mind on at least something somewhere along this, along the way, all of us, self-included, and I'm not sure we're really open in our hearts and minds to God's word. Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? I, I felt a whole lot this week like, no, not me. <laughs> or who has been his counselor? Or who has been given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And we all say, amen. Let's pray. Father, um, <clears throat> there's so much happening in our lives, in our land, in the world. So much happening that is disconcerting. It causes us to be tempted to be anxious. But Lord, may our hearts Find peace in you. Lord, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the peace of the Middle East. We pray for peace in our midst. And after everything we've thought and said and done, <laughs> we are grateful to be called by your name. We love you. Increase our understanding in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand together, please? Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies.